Open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. The reason that I'm in this text is, you know, last Sunday night we did question and answer, and there were questions about prophecy and the Antichrist and some of those things. So this morning I was going to preach on the Antichrist, but I just couldn't do that. I couldn't preach on the Antichrist without first preaching about Jesus Christ. So what I want to look at today is... This passage deals with the spirit of Antichrist and, and who Jesus Christ is. And we're going to be all over the Bible today, so make sure you've got your Bible handy there. But, you know, how many of you recognize that we're really living in a time of transition? And there are churches and entire movements that are moving away from the Word of God. They're moving away from the truth of Scripture. They're moving away from who Jesus Christ really is. And... With all of the change that's going on in the world, here's the good news. This is a great time to be a Christian because it's like the guy, the two salesmen that were sent to Africa to sell shoes. You all have heard this, right? The one guy wired back and said, this is terrible. Why'd you send me here? Nobody wears shoes. The other guy sent back and said, man, this is great. Everybody here needs shoes. So we, so you all have heard that too many times, haven't you? I could tell. That's really awesome. And so with, with all the upheaval in the world, everybody needs shoes. Everybody needs Jesus Christ. And so what's going to happen in this time, and it's already happening, is we're having people from every flavor of Christianity and even some of the cults come in and visit Grace Baptist Church. And here's the good news. This is where they belong. We want all of those people to come here. But as they come here... We don't want to change what we believe to appease the culture. We want the culture, as it comes into Grace Baptist Church, to be confronted with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Amen? And so we want to train you, and we want the, the foundation of everything that we do to be the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we want to learn how to interact with some of these things. We're going to look at that today. So let's look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. Beloved, believe every spirit. Did I mess up? Beloved, believe not every spirit. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, they're a Christian. Heard so-and-so saying, they're a Christian. Well, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth, that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Now, I want to deal with that section of the passage. How many of you recognize that there's more to Christianity and Christian doctrine than believing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. How many of you know that there's more to it than that? So what is this text talking about? The Apostle John was dealing with a very specific doctrinal error. It was called Gnosticism. It's from the Greek word gnosis. starts with a G, gnosis. Gnosis. It's actually gnosis, but gnosis. And what these Gnostics were doing was they had this idea that they had this special knowledge and only people that had this special knowledge were true Christians. But they also did not believe, they denied that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. 
And it, there was another uh, heresy at that time. It was called Manichaeism. And what the idea was, was that anything that is physical is sinful. And so Jesus Christ didn't really have a physical body. That's the doctrine that the Apostle John is dealing with. Now, how many of you are thankful that Jesus Christ did have a physical body so that he could die on the cross for you and for me? And it was that body that rose from the dead. Keep your place here in 1 John. Go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 and verse 39. So this is Jesus Christ has been crucified. He has risen from the dead. He has appeared to the two uh, disciples on the Emmaus road. And now he's appearing to the disciples as they're fishing. And he says to them in verse 39, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. Jesus Christ had a physical body. Now that body was sinless, isn't that wonderful? But it was a physical body. And that physical body was nailed to the cross. It was taken down from the cross. It was buried in the tomb. And then that physical body rose from the dead. He walked around for 40 days and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that body is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. He is also returning soon in that body and we're going to see him isn't that a blessing we're going to see him so this passage was dealing specifically with that doctrine of gnosticism which said that jesus christ didn't have a body that was a physical body all right now look at verse four so we're back in first john chapter four look at verse four ye are of god little children and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world they are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world heareth them. We're of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Have you ever talked to somebody about the word of God and they're just not interested in it? Why not? Because they're not of God. So what is your job? Your job is not to argue with them about the errors of their cult. Your job is not to argue with them about the errors of their faith. Your job is to preach Jesus Christ to them. Is that right? We must tell them who Jesus Christ is. I'm going to deal with some of that again here in a minute. Um, look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us. Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to understand the, just some of the, the error that's in the world and how we are to deal with it. Lord, I pray that this is a help. But most of all, I pray that you're glorified by what's done here today. In Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm so glad you all are here today. I'm glad that I get to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Anybody here love Jesus? Amen. Do you love Jesus Christ? And I just hate it when false doctrine goes out there. I was flying with someone one time. I think I've told you before. And she said um, that she was a Christian. But everything that she said was completely against what the Bible says. And I just told her, I said, you need to understand something. You're not a Christian. And she said, what? I said, well, you're something. You're just not a Christian. 
And she said, well, I, I am a Christian. And I said, the problem is you, are a, you call yourself a Christian, but you don't worship the Jesus of the Bible. You're worshiping a Jesus that you've created. That's, you're not worshiping the Jesus Christ of the Bible. That's the world that we're living in. Everyone is defining who Jesus Christ is. Oprah Winfrey said she's Jesus. How many of you did not know that Oprah said she was Jesus? How many didn't? Check it out. Don't, don't believe me. Check it out. Check it out. When I picture Jesus, that's not what I'm <laughs> picture. So, <laughs> I need to... How many of you have seen that, that, that they're, they're making a movie out of that book, The Shack? How many of you have seen that that's going to come out? I'm going to be dealing with that. The, the Shack is based on a doctrine called universalism. Universalism is the concept that everyone will ultimately be saved. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you believe, you're saved. If you don't believe, you're condemned already. All right? And so I'll, I'll be dealing with that. Um, but this idea of who is Jesus Christ and how are we to deal with him, there was a great book written by a man named Walter Martin. It was called The Kingdom of the Cults. And I know that many of you have seen that book. And he talks about how to interact with someone that is a cultist. Um, and I'm going to define what a cult is in a, in a minute in the message. Um, but basically... There's all different definitions for a cult, but when we're, as Christians, when we talk about it, it's someone who denies Jesus Christ, who preaches another gospel. That's, that's basically what a cult is, and we'll get into that. So here's how Walter Martin, I'm just reading directly from his book. How do you interact with them? So this is talking about you. This is what you must do. He must strive to direct the conversation to the problem of terminology and maneuver the cult adherent into a position where he must define his usage of terms and his authority. If any, for drastic, unbiblical defin uh, redefinitions, which are certain to emerge. So I just drove by it the other day. I was heading to, to uh, St. Mary's, and I drove by the way. How many of you have seen the way? And so when you talk, how many of you have ever spoken to somebody that, that attends the way? Have you ever spoken to somebody who goes there? That, see, they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in any of those things. And so when you're talking with someone like that, they're going to talk about Jesus. You need to say, well, who do you mean by Jesus? Who is he? And when you hear the definition that they give, if they say he was a good man, they might even call him the son of God. But here's the follow-up always with that. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead? Do you believe that he is God, as much God as God the Father is. You see, you're defining terms. You're making them define the terms. All right, number two, the Christian must then compare these definitions with the various contexts of the verses upon which the cultist draws support of his doctrinal interpretations. So if you're talking to somebody from the way and they're denying that Jesus Christ is God, they would go to the place where Jesus would say, I do always those things that my Father commands me. And so they will use a passage like that to say that, or, or, or another passage where, where Jesus said, um, the Father is greater than I. And they go to those passages, and they will take them out of context to say that Jesus Christ is not God. Jesus Christ also said, I and my Father are one. Show me the Father. If you've seen the Father, I've been with you so long and you don't know. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what Jesus Christ said. The Bible in Hebrew says that He's the express image of the Father. All right, so... Um, 
look at those definitions and apply them to the Scripture. He must define the words interpretation, historic orthodoxy, and standard doctrinal phrases such as the new birth, the atonement, context, exegesis, eternal judgment, etc., so that no misunderstanding will exist when these things come under discussion. Now, let me ask you, do you know what new birth, the atonement, context of Scripture, exegesis, eternal judgment, do you know what those things mean? If you don't know what those things mean, that's fine. I'm glad you're here. And we, need a, we have one-on-one -on -one discipleship. We can get you involved in that, and you can learn and grow and all of those things. That's the heart of Grace Baptist Church. But if you've been saved for any length of time, you need to know what these terms mean, okay? And I'm not going to take the time to define them today. The Christian must attempt to lead the cultist to a review of the importance of properly defining terms for all important doctrines involved particularly the doctrine of personal redemption from sin, which most cult systems define as a markedly in a markedly unbiblical manner. So Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sin. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. That substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Jim Alter, I am a sinner. I deserve to go to hell. I don't deserve... The, just, just like Aaron and Maureen saying, who am I that God would do that? I don't deserve salvation. There's nothing in me that deserves to be redeemed. But Jesus Christ, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus Christ paid for my sin on the cross. That's the heart of Christianity and most cults reject that. Um, it is the responsibility of the Christian to present a clear testimony of his own regenerative experience, that is, your own new birth experience, which Jesus Christ in terminology, or with Jesus Christ in terminology, which has been carefully clarified regarding the necessity of such regeneration on the part of the cultist in the light of the certain reality of God's inevitable justice. So that's a long way of saying that you need to be able to give your testimony, and then you need to be able to say to the cultist, you need to be saved too. If you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, who is God and His death, burial, and resurrection, then because God is just, you'll have to go to hell. God doesn't want you to go to hell. I don't want you to go to hell. You need to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, the God of the Bible for your eternal life. You see, you need to have a personal testimony that you can express in your own language using biblical terms so that that person can know who they're dealing with. Um, I was at um, Rocky Mountain National Park. We were there on vacation. And at the top, so that's what we call it. So you get to the top of Trail Ridge Road. They have a visitor center there. And the Jehovah's Witnesses had a table set up. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses do not witness for Jehovah. All right? That's a cult. And so they had a table set up there, and there was a man at the table. They were, he was looking at their literature. And so I just walked up and stood next to the guy looked at their material, looked at him, looked at the ladies. I said, hey, did they tell you they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God? Did they tell you that? Did they tell you they don't believe in the, the resurrection? Did they tell you they don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Did they tell you that? Well, we're, we're um, uh, um, did they not tell you that? Oh, you're hiding that from them. Isn't that called lying? Do you see these are professional liars, sir? You need to be careful. When we lived here on Edgewood Street, there were some Jehovah's Witnesses that came to the door, and they always have um, a trainer and a trainee. The trainee started talking to me, and they didn't know what they were getting into, which is really fun. 
And so I started asking the trainee questions about who Jesus Christ is, what the Bible says. And she would look, she, she'd look at me and I'd see her looking at her trainer like this. And the trainer stepped in and said, well, we need to be going. It's time for us to move down the street. And I said, oh, I have time. Let's go together. And I just walked down the street <laughs> with them. And so they ended up, they called their van and their van came and picked them up and they left the neighborhood. Hallelujah. I felt like uh, Patrick with the snakes or whatever that was going out of Ireland. It was awesome. But we have to be ready to know who Jesus Christ is and what we are, what we are about, ready to do that. All right? Um, I'm just going to read you what Martin says here. It may be necessary also in the course of discussing terminology and its dishonest recasting by cult systems to resort to occasional polemic utterances. What is that? You're wrong. You're wrong. That's heresy. That's not true. That's, you have... We, we have to speak clearly like that. So he says, In such cases, the Christian should be certain that they are tempered with patience and love so that the cultist appreciates that such tactics are motivated by one's personal concern for his eternal welfare and not simply to win the argument. Isn't that good? I think that's really good. So let us never forget, this, and this is the important part that I want to get to from Martin, and then we're going to get into the Scriptures. Let, us nev- let it never be forgotten that cultists are experts at lifting texts out of their respective contexts without proper concern for the laws of language or the established principles of biblical interpretation. So what is context? It's what the passage means in its context. All right? If I look out at the whole crowd and say, I want to kiss you, all right, this room would empty very quickly. All right? But if I said it to my wife, she'd probably run away too, but at least it would be appropriate. All right, that's context. Context is vital. It's vital. And so when a passage is taken out of its context, it can mean almost anything. Um, There are those of whom Peter warns us who rest the Scriptures unto their own destruction. That's 2 Peter 3.16. This is an accurate picture of the kingdom of the cults in the realm of terminology. So looking back over the picture of cult semantics, that's the way they use words, the following facts emerge. Number one. The average cultist knows his terminology very thoroughly. He also has a historic knowledge of Christian usage and is therefore prepared to discuss many areas of Christian theology intelligently. So when, I, when we get into the scriptures, we're going to go to 1 John 5, 7. And if you show that verse to a cultist, they'll say, well, in many study Bibles, they say that that verse isn't supposed to be in your Bible. Isn't that interesting? They know how to attack our scriptures. Number two, the well-trained cultist will carefully avoid definition of terms concerning cardinal doctrines such as the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the atonement, the bodily resurrection of our Lord, the process of salvation by grace and justification by faith. If pressed in these areas, he will redefine the terms to fit the semantic framework of orthodoxy unless he is forced to define his terms explicitly. Now, the word orthodoxy means it agrees with the creeds. So in the history of of Protestantism, they have established creeds, statements about doctrine. Now, we as Baptists, we're not creedalists, all right? We are biblicists. So we don't need creeds or or extra-biblical expressions. We don't need those. Now, where they agree with the Scriptures, praise God, I'm for them, right? But in many cases, they'll agree with the Scriptures and they'll say something that's not biblical, something on predestination or other things that are not expressly from Scripture, okay? But the word orthodox means agreeing with the creeds, and for our discussion today, we'll we'll go with it. Um, Then, the informed Christian must seek to point for a point of departure, 
preferably the authority of the Scriptures, which can become a powerful and useful tool in the hands of a Christian if properly exercised. Man, you want to get a cultist frustrated, just keep going to the Bible. Keep going to the Bible. I was flying somewhere. I think I was flying to Oklahoma City, and I got to fly next to the trainer for the way who was going to a meeting in Oklahoma City. And so I just started talking about Jesus with him. And he said, um, well, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. And so go with me right now. We were going to go here in a minute anyway. Go to the book of Hebrews. Man, the conversations you get in on airplanes, it is hilarious. The most unusual was I sat next to a guy and he said to me, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He said, my husband's a pastor. That was a conversation that I'd never expected to have. All right. Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 8. So this is God the Father speaking. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne. What are those next two words? O God is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. God the Father calls God the Son God. So I showed it to the, uh, the way, dude. And he, he took my Bible, and he went like this. He went, like he had never seen that before. And then he looked like it was going to bite him. The best thing that you can do with a cultist who is claiming the Scriptures for his authority is to show him from the Scriptures where he's in error. Okay? It's very important that you do that. All right. The concerned Christian worker must familiarize himself to some extent with the terminology of the major cult systems if he is to enjoy any measure of success in understanding the cultist mind when bearing witness for Christ. And this year I would like to do that. I'd like to go through, and just we could do, call it a comparative religion course, and, and explain, okay, what do Mormons believe? What do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? What do these different groups teach about who Jesus Christ is? All right, so let's dive into the message. That was all the introduction. There's no service tonight, so we have plenty of time. Amen? All right, so... Number one, what is a cult? What is a cult? Well, it's anyone who teaches another Jesus. Anyone who teaches another Jesus. There's a series of books called Jesus Calling. Have you seen those things? You'll see them in the Christian bookstore. Complete heresy. This is a woman who has some spirit demon guide talking for Jesus. It is complete garbage. Stay away from it. It's another Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. And we're not supposed to bear with that person. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In verse 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. A cultist is a person who teaches another Jesus. All right? <clears throat> verse 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy... For I have espoused you to one husband. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ. I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest, any, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. All right, look at verse 4. For if he that, com for if he that cometh preacheth, what does it say? Another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. All right, so when subtle changes are made to the gospel, Christians can be affected by it. And look at what is addressed another Jesus, 
another spirit, and another gospel. Like the lady on the airplane. Her Jesus Christ was not a Jesus that would judge sin. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the one who is going to judge sin. That is Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, well, actually, I'm not going to judge you, but the words that I speak unto you, they will judge you, the words of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who's sitting on the throne at the great white throne judgment. So if you have a Jesus that's not a judge, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Amen? So that's another Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Um, I I know I've said this many times, but I was reading um, someone one time about the gospel. And he said that when he was a kid, he used to think of Jesus like Mr. Rogers. You know, Mr. Rogers was a nice guy. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Remember? And he said this, why would anybody want to kill Mr. Rogers? They don't like cardigans, you know? Did you ever notice his sweater always zipped? I never saw a sweater that zipped before Mr. Rogers. Mr. McFeely, you know? And I love the trolley. Remember the trolley? The land of make-believe? How many of you think I spent too much time in the land of (laughs) make-believe? Drug-free land of make-believe right here. But his point was, why would anybody want to kill Mr. Rogers? People who have that, that Mr. Rogers is their Jesus, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Erwin Lutzer said, if the world loves your Jesus, it's because you've made him into something that he is not. But not only another Jesus, but another spirit. If you have a Holy Spirit that's always speaking and he's not speaking about Jesus, that's not the Holy Spirit of the Bible. Isn't that right? If the Holy Spirit tells you to do something that is outside the purview or the parameters of Scripture, that's not the Holy Spirit of the Scriptures. Because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He won't speak of Himself, but whatever the Father and the Son say, that will He speak. So if the Holy Spirit is telling you something different than what Jesus Christ said, or something different that comes from the the pages of Scripture, that's another spirit. And Satan has subtly moving you away from the God of the Bible. So, a cultist is someone who brings another Jesus. Look at verse, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Now, remember what Jesus said. He commended the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. But this thou hast, that thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Jesus commends them for that. All right? So here, they're deceitful workers, middle of verse 13, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel. So it's only D.C. Remember that, kids. And no marvel. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And remember, Revelation chapter 20, when someone's judged according to their works, the penalty for that is the lake of fire. Okay? They're going to be judged according to their works. Another Another Jesus. And then another gospel. Go to Galatians. Galatians. Just the next book over. Galatians chapter 3. I'm sorry. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. Look at what it says. So, from the grace of Christ... Unto, what does it say? Which is not another. In other words, there's not another gospel. 
Somebody's teaching a false gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would... What's that next word? So these are gospel perverts. They pervert the gospel and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And remember, repetition in the Bible is God's volume control. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. It's very important that we get this. Cultists will bring another Jesus, another gospel, another Holy Spirit, and we have to know what the truth is to be able to recognize that. All right? And so a cultist is anyone who brings another Jesus, another gospel, or anyone who teaches another God. Look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42. Look at verse 8. The Bible says, I am the Lord. This is Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. So what do cults have? Cults have talismans. They have statues that people bow before. Graven images. They use a name that they call God, but who is not God. And God is a very jealous God. He will not give His glory to another. They preach another God. So let's look at who God really is. Let's look at who Jesus really is. Go to the book of 1 John again. Chapter 5. Look at verse 7. Now, if you had a study Bible, if you have a study Bible, you might have a footnote there that says this passage is not found in the best manuscripts. It's just not true. It's not found in the manuscripts that that study Bible writer likes. But the early church all believed this passage. So I'm not going to defend the text today, but just it's in the Bible. And the early church all believed it and quoted it and lived it. All right? 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So who's the Word? According to John 1, the Word is Jesus Christ. All right? So God is a trinity. God the Father is God. We know that. God the Son is God, and we saw that from uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. And then God the Holy Spirit is God. Let's look at that. Look at, chapter, at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Now, all of you who filled out commitment cards, you need to memorize this passage. (laughs) Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto who? God. So he lied to the Holy Ghost, lied to God. God is the Holy Ghost. So God is a trinity. What does that mean? So the word Godhead is the Bible word. The word trinity is not found in the Bible, although it expresses a truth. The biblical word is the Godhead. So it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. Co- they are completely God. 
Three persons, one God, the Godhead. All right, that's the Trinity, and that's the formulation in Scripture. All three persons were involved in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that, Genesis 1.1. But John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Then you see Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It says, And the Spirit moved on the face of the waters. God the Father ordains. God the Son speaks. God the Holy Spirit executes. They all have their individual roles, but they are all equally God. And they have existed, self-sustained throughout all eternity. They need nothing from us. That's our God. That's our God. And, of course, that is a very limited definition. But the Bible expresses God as a trinity. And this has been true from the beginning. Let's run this quickly. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 26. Noah, that's the first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 26. And God said, isn't this such an interesting formulation? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So he made, God, man was made in God's image. Man's a tripartite being, body, soul, and spirit. We're a trinity, body, soul, and spirit. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually. And that's why you must be born again. When you're born again, you're made spiritually alive. Ephesians chapter 2. And ye hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You're made alive spiritually. When you're born, when you are conceived, a living soul comes into existence. And that soul will exist somewhere, either in heaven or hell, forever. Spiritually, if you are spiritually alive, then you'll be with God in heaven forever. If you are never alive spiritually, if you're never born again then you're going to spend eternity separated from God forever. But the Bible says, let us make man in our image. And that is a tripartite being, body, soul, and spirit. And the book of 1 Thessalonians identifies that for us. So that is verse 26. Let us make man in our image. Look at chapter 3, Genesis 3. Look at verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, man has become as one of, what's it say? Us. To know good and evil. To do good and evil, all right? Look at Genesis chapter 11. Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded, and the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us, that's God speaking, let us go down there and confound their language. So the Bible, all the way from the beginning, it's not new truth, all the way from the beginning expresses God as a trinity. So, well, you know, we better get the New Testament passage as well. Go to Matthew chapter 28. All right, Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Do you see that? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In the book of Acts, the Bible says to baptize them in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. But what you have to understand is, 
God the Father is called Lord. God the Son is called Lord. God the Holy Spirit is called Lord. We could, chase, we could trace those passages down. Go ahead and look that up yourself, and you'll see that that's the Godhead, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So why are the cults successful? Why do they get people to follow them and believe them? Well, look at Acts chapter 17 and verse 21. Acts 17, verse 21. Um, why don't we start in verse... It'd be good if I was in the right chapter. Look at chapter 17, verse 21. Um, what's going on, look at verse um, 16. Now, while, while Paul waited for them at Athens. His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans, now the Epicureans were people that wanted to experience life in its fullness. That was their philosophy. Go for the gusto. And the Stoics, the Stoics would be the people that were going to give everything up. There, then, certain, uh, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine, look at this, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know, therefore, what these things mean. Now look at verse 21. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some what? New thing. People are always looking for something new. And here's why. Now, I want you to see what's going on in this text. The Athenians, those were people who heard all about all these different gods, right? They're all different gods in the Greek system. So they knew about all of that. They're at Athens. But then it says the strangers. When you see the word strangers, those are Jews that are away from Israel. All right? So you see these strangers that are there. And the Jews are being sucked into these different philosophies and these different new ideas. Why do people look for new truth? You know, the cults, where the cults gather a lot of their people, are out of mainline churches. And what happens is these churches cease to be relevant to the culture. How many of you have ever been bored in church? Right? Nobody? None of you have ever been bored? You must have all come here for your whole time. <laughs> you ever been bored? How many of you are bored right now? You are, I can tell. <laughs> what happens is when, when faith stops, to be, stops being relevant. Right? Now, if your goal is relevance, you don't have a biblical faith. But if you want your biblical faith to, to be effective, it has to be relevant. We have to deal with people where they are from the Scriptures. And when here's what happened. Churches moved away from the authority of the Word of God. People started saying, well, you don't really have to believe this passage. Well, that's not really what that's talking about. And they begin creating a gospel and a Christianity to fit people for a certain time. And when you do that, you undermine the authority of Scripture because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 21 that God the Father would receive glory by Jesus Christ in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So from the time Jesus Christ established the church, God would receive glory through Jesus Christ in those churches until the end of time. 
That's what the Bible says, which means that our message is effective and valuable and profitable for every age. But what happens is people stop believing it. They stop believing it and it becomes old. And people always want something new. How many of you have ever gotten a new phone when your old phone was just fine? You ever done that? Hey, this one, my phone, pretty soon we're going to be walking around with, you know, hello. Be like the original phones that looked like a shoebox, you know. We're heading back towards that. And we want something new. Oh, my camera only has a million megapixel camera. Now yours has a three million megapixel camera. Of course, there's not an image in the world where you can use all those megapixels, but I need that right now. We all want something new. There's something new. How many times have you seen on a package, new and improved? New and improved, right? How do you improve cornflakes? By putting sugar on them, right? The reason the cults are effective is because, first of all, Satan hates the truth, and people who are opposed to God hate the truth. But man, you know, it was said, Blaise Pascal said that within every man is a God-shaped vacuum, all right? Whether or not that's true, every man has a desire for God, while at the same time running away from God. And if you can fill that need for God with a false religion, Satan will fill that vacuum. Satan will do it. So they're always looking for something new, but remember, there is no truth. The other thing is, what these cults do is they provide answers. They provide answers. Notice, many Christians today say, well, I don't know. I'm not sure what the Bible says about it. You know, that's really up to you. You know, the Joel Osteen approach. Right? Are, are Mormons going to go to heaven? I'm not, I'm not going to judge. You know, Larry, that's not really... That's not really my ministry. How many of you saw that interview? You haven't seen it? Check it out. Because God wants you to be happy. And if you're happy, then God's happy. And if God's happy, then you're happy and we're all happy. Aren't you happy? Let's pass the offering plates. You see, people want... They want something that doesn't require them to change their lives. And Jesus Christ will require you to change. Amen? Man, we want everybody to come here, but we want the Word of God to change them. That's the idea of the Scriptures. So they provide answers. They're sure. They're passionate. They are passionate. They provide belonging. And many times, man, they look successful. Man, you see these Mormons coming through and they, you know, what was the theme song that Tim Hawkins came? I like to ride my bicycle. I like to ride my bike. And they're coming through and they look good. And imagine this. So I like for our, our young people to spend a year in Bible college. And Christian parents say, that's a sabbatical year. Like, oh, you can't do that. Man, Mormons take two years. They take two years. It's interesting, isn't it? They're so committed. They're passionate about what they're doing. They're passionate about it. Um, then... What should our response be to the cultists who attend our church? Well, first, our response should be love. It should be love. Go with me to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 
Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew not him, or it knew him not. The defining characteristic of a Christian is supposed to be our love one for another, right? And if, if you begin, so you're talking with a Mormon, and so we did soul winning training, I don't know, 20-some years ago, a guy named David Wood, and you're supposed to ask somebody, what's your church background? And someone said, I'm a Mormon. And he said, you dumb Mormon, don't you know that's a cult? That's not the way to approach it, okay? He was demonstrating that's not the way that you are to approach it. No, you say something nice. Man, their choir's awesome. <laughs> you know, say something nice and then get to Jesus Christ. Because all of those strange doctrines in Mormonism, you're not going to get through that stuff without the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And so you have to begin by establishing who Jesus Christ is. Begin with love. Look at chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 6. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. So we know how to love and we're supposed to express that. And then, so our first response is to be loved. But look at 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. Look at verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. So let's explain that. It means damned to hell. Praise the Lord. You see it? 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Let's look at it again. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ... Let him be anathema, maranatha, damned to hell, praise the Lord. It's very important that we get this. Love does not mean endorsing error. Love does not mean endorsing error. Love means love Jesus first. If you love Jesus first, then you know how to love other people. It's very important that we get that. Then, we need to, they need to see love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at the book of Romans. Chapter 16. So just go back one book now. Romans chapter 16. Now look at verse 16. This is every teenager's favorite verse. Salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Now I beseech you, brethren. So you see this? There's, there's a context of love. Now I beseech you, brethren. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So here's what happens. You'll have somebody come into the church, and this has happened. Uh, um, Pastor Alter, I have a word from the Lord. I, wanna, I need to speak to the church today. No, I don't know you. I'm the pastor. I'm the shepherd. I'm going to protect the flock from the wolves. Amen? Man, I, there's nobody standing in the pulpit of Grace Baptist Church that we don't know what they believe. It's just not going to happen. It's very important that we get that because people can be easily deceived. And so because we love each other, we stop the mouths of false teachers from among us. It's very important. Mark them and avoid them. Mark them and avoid them. All right, so then... 
What should we do to prepare for a confrontation with a cultist? How do we prepare? Well, number one, know Jesus Christ. Know who He is. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. Look at this. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. The best way to know how to deal with a cultist is to know who Jesus Christ is and have a personal relationship with that Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you? So, if someone asked me, what is your wife like? Well, I could talk for hours because I know her. How long could you talk about Jesus? It's interesting, isn't it? What do you really know about Jesus Christ? So, number one, know Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. So, you know, Protestants in the Reformation, if someone was teaching false doctrine, they'd kill them. They'd kill them. So Martin Luther wrote to Henry VIII and said, kill the Anabaptists, kill them. Got to get rid of them. So, but here's the Bible says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So we as Christians, we're supposed to be able to control our minds and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and determine whether or not anything has gotten the preeminent place above Jesus Christ. Remember, the primary attack of the cultist will be on the deity of Christ, and we must be ready with an answer on who Jesus Christ is. So who is Jesus? Let's just finish it up with this. Who is Jesus? Go to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Are you all doing okay? All right. Colossians. There's not, I'm not getting any amens or anything. I'm wondering if maybe you have a lot of cultists here today. Or Jeff Bradshaw. All right. So look what it says about Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 17. And He is before all things and by Him All things consist. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the eternal creator. Jesus Christ is the eternal, uncreated creator. Then, look at John chapter 8. Jesus Christ is God. John chapter 8. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was... Look at what it says. Does it say, I was? I am. I am. Remember the burning bush? Who shall you say that... how, How will I tell people who you are, Moses asked. Tell them the I am. And look at how the Jews understood that. Look at the next verse. 
Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So Jesus Christ said, I, the, He is the I Am, that is, that He is God. Look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I was dealing with an apostolic pastor who doesn't believe in the Trinity. And I showed him these passages, and they can't answer them. John chapter 17 and verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. Jesus Christ had the glory of God before the world was. Look at verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which Thou hast given me. For Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the eternal Godhead. He is the creator of life. He's the creator of life. Look at John chapter 1. I quoted this earlier. But let's read it together. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that word, Word, it is um, the word Logos. And so Origen, so Origen was an early commentator and Bible critic. He lived in the 200s. And he's public enemy number one of every Bible-believing Christian. I read his commentary or portion of his commentary on the Gospel of John. And he describes the word as a demiurge, a secondary cause. He didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. He didn't believe Jesus Christ was God. And this was the state in early Christianity. It was a fight for the deity of Christ. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is God. I'm not going to take the time to go there, but remember in the book of Exodus when um, God sent Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, and Pharaoh wouldn't let the children of Israel go. And so they did all these miracles. You know, he, he took and he threw his staff down and it turned into a snake. And Egyptians magician, Egypt's magicians could do the same thing, Janus and Jambres. And he had frogs come out of everywhere and the Egyptians had frogs come out. And they had the frogs go back into the water and the magicians could make the frogs go back in the water. So what did God do? He had Moses put his staff out and turn the dust into lice. And everywhere there was dust, it became lice. It's very interesting. I saw some people doing this. <laughs> Start scratching your head. Everywhere there was lice, everywhere. In the animals and on the people, everywhere there was dust, it was lice. And listen to what the magicians said. This is the finger of God. See, that miracle turned the polytheists into monotheists. Because there's only one God that can turn dust into life. That's the God of the Bible. They said, this is the finger of God. Only God can create life out of dust. That's why Satan hates creation and all of this garbage about evolution. It's because Satan hates the Creator. Because if he's, if he's your Creator, then he is your God. If he is your God, he has prerogatives. And those prerogatives include requiring righteousness from you. Faith, righteousness, holiness, belief. All of that is required by the God who is the creator 
Only He can create life. Then Jesus was crucified because He claimed to be the Son of God, and we looked at some of those passages. Jesus also claimed the right to be able to forgive sin. Jesus claimed to be the second person of the Godhead. Let's finish with this, 1 Timothy 3. First Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That's our Savior. That's our Savior. I love the beginning of the verse, without controversy. Is there controversy about that? Not really. Not really. It's like saying water's not wet. Holes aren't empty. Just silliness. Just complete silliness. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Aren't you glad that's the Jesus we can know? Amen. Aren't you glad that he didn't tell us that the way... Here, here's the way you witness for me. Go kill somebody. Go take a truck and drive it into a Christmas celebration. That's not our God. Our God says, they'll know you're my disciples by our love one for another. So look, we live in a time of change. I started with that. We're living in a transitionary time where our Christian spirituality and morality is going away. And what is rising up is pagan morality. So we are going to stand out like a sore thumb in this culture. We need to stand out for our righteousness, but when they observe our righteousness, it ought to be accompanied by unbelievable love. That's who we're supposed to be. But remember, love doesn't excuse sin. Love lovingly points people to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we deal with cultists? We deal with them with love, but we deal with them with truth. We speak the truth in love. You know the Bible says that that's the mark of a mature church in Ephesians chapter 4? but speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him who is the head, even the perfect man, Jesus Christ. That's who we are supposed to be as a church, speaking the truth in love. We can't learn about the Antichrist until we know who Jesus Christ is. He is God. He came and lived a sinless life. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross to pay for your sin and mine. He was buried. And after three days and three nights, he rose from the dead, proving that he was, is, and always will be God. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he makes intercession for you and for me right now. But one day, soon, he's going to stand up, and he is going to come back. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, to be with Him in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. This world's going bad, but Jesus Christ is coming back. Isn't that wonderful? He came the first time as Savior. He's coming the second time as Judge. And the Bible says that because Jesus Christ died on the cross, wherefore God hath also highly exalted Him and given Him a name that's above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Have you acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord? Have you done that? If you haven't, let today be the day. Jesus Christ loves you so much. This God that created everything and created you, He loves you so much that He died on the cross for you. Those of us who do love Him, 
Let's, testi- let's testify for Him better. Amen? Amen? Let's all stand together. How many of you here would say, I need, to, I need to talk about Jesus more? Would you raise your hands? I need to talk about Jesus more. We need to do it in love. Let me ask you this. How many of you look at the culture and get mad? Would you raise your hands? You look at the culture and get mad. That's not going to help. We need to look at the culture through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Realize He died for them. He died for them. Lord Jesus, thank You so much for Your Word.